0: I'm Damian Bolwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, plunging juvenile crime in California. A chronicle investigation finds staggering declines in violent crime by young people, once referred to as super predators by society. Even amid the changes, though, California has been slow to respond, throwing more and more money at virtually empty juvenile jails. We talked to Jill Tucker and Joaquin Palomino about their story called Vanishing Violence. Jill and Joaquin, thanks for joining us.
1: Ah, oh, so happy to be here. Thanks.
0: So you two have been working on a story for quite a while that is a little something different. You've been investigating good news. Your story, Vanishing Violence, is making a big impact. Can you tell us what the main findings
2: are? We saw that there's this, you know, really well documented period in the late eighties, early to mid nineteen nineties, where youth crime just spiked. You know, in the mid nineties you had on average one juvenile killed every day in California. There's about 60 kids arrested daily for serious, violent felony offenses. And so you had this period where you know there there was this big problem, and policymakers. I mean, they tried to respond. I mean, this this it, it sparked this you know this fear, this hysteria over these so-called juvenile super predators. You know, which are you know typically young men of color who were determined or, or thought to have sort of no remorse, be these sort of uncontrollable criminals that were going to plague, you know, the state for, for years and decades to come. This, this environment really helped build out the juvenile justice system, at least the, the, the infrastructure that we have in California today. And so we were looking at both, you know, this, this time period, this, this crime wave in California, this, this tightening of laws, this tightening of policies, uh, this expansion of juvenile halls and, and camps across the state. And we're looking at sort of what the implications of maintaining that infrastructure are today now that juvenile crime has just plummeted. The number of arrests for violent felonies are down threefold. The number of juveniles that have been killed in the state are down sixfold. Um, I mean, just remarkable, remarkable declines since that that peak.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, and it was interesting because we knew crime was going down. I mean, the, the data is out there showing that crime is going down. But when we really started diving into the numbers, some of the things that came back, Joaquin and I would look at each other and go, is, is this right? Because it kind of looks like a typo.
0: How do you get from those numbers uh, of, of all the drop in crime? How do you get from there to assessing the whole state's uh, juvenile justice system?
1: Well, what we found um, once we started looking at how low crime had dropped, we started looking at what the implications of that were. Um, and what we found was juvenile halls across California mostly empty, and, which is great news, right? I mean, that's sure. exactly what society wants. We don't want kids locked up. But what we found was that given the number of kids locked up, how few there were in these facilities, I mean, virtually every juvenile hall in California was more than half empty, some almost entirely empty. And what we found was the cost to hold children in these juvenile halls has skyrocketed. So as eye-popping as the numbers were in terms of crime reduction, the numbers were also staggering in terms of how much we were spending to keep kids locked up um, on average. And in some cases, it was reaching um, half a million dollars a year on average to hold one kid behind bars. Wow.
0: I gotta imagine it's very difficult to report a story about something that's not there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it was very difficult <laughs> because what you're reporting on, which is unusual for journalists um, to report on the absence of something, right, to report on things that didn't happen. And in this case, you know, investigating good news, you know, it's sort of like that's a it's a novel thing, um, an amazing thing. Um, And, you know, and and what we found along with it was the inability of society to sort of address that as as eagerly as they would when uh, there's a crime spike, when there's fear. And yet pointing out how much the state and counties are spending to incarcerate children, in some cases spending $500,000 a year, to incarcerate a child, on average, um, you know, fourteen hundred dollars a day. I think it's been a little eye-opening for public officials and communities across the state. Those numbers were as shocking as some of the reductions in crime, and um, which is really what what helped spark some of the action that we've seen since those stories came out.
0: So why why if we're seeing these big numbers, we're seeing the the drops that you reported? Why aren't policymakers immediately aggressively? cutting these facilities? Why aren't they taking big steps?
2: Some probation chiefs we spoke with, I mean, they defended it by saying, I mean, bureaucracies sort of move slowly. If mm-hmm. you, for example, shut down a facility and then this declining crime reverses and it starts going up, it's going to cost a lot of money to build something new, to staff up a brand new facility. But at the same time, while the experts we spoke with are saying, hey, this has been going on a long time. And I mean, at this point, when you have facilities operating at 25 percent capacity, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars per year to lock up one kid, you have to start asking, you know, is this sustainable? And so I think people are now beginning to ask that question. I mean, here in San Francisco, they're looking into closing down the juvenile hall where it cost about 270000 per year annually to lock up a kid. And so I think right now, I mean, people are starting to look at this. What do we do with this space? How do we make use of this space in a way where it's not so unsustainably expensive?
0: But it sounds like there was just some disbelief. I mean, you, you guys said you were, you know, a little bit incredulous about the numbers. Was Is there also disbelief from people who are looking at them and making these decisions?
1: You know, some probation chiefs said that they're starting to accept that perhaps this is the new normal, but... There's a lot of people still holding their breath. I mean, crime is cyclical, right? And, um, and even though this uh, reduction in crime has been going on for 20 years, there's still sort of this idea like, but what if, right? What sure. if crime turns around? What if, you know, we see, you know, the economy tanks or a new drug hits the market or something along these lines um, that, uh, you know, they find a way to fill them again, And so I think that the status quo is easier to maintain, um, especially when people aren't yelling and screaming, um, you know, as they would when crime is up. It's easier to sort of sit back, wait and see, and keep spending the same amount, which, you know, is hard. You know, people don't notice. You're just spending the same amount. For less kids, though. For far fewer kids. And uh, so when we pointed out exactly how much it was costing per child – what we're seeing is that that sort of woke people up a little bit in, in the sense of, oh, wait, $500,000 a year? It's hard to justify that. Sure. By comparison, California spends about 11000 a little bit more annually to educate a child. So we're talking about a massive difference between what it costs to keep a child in juvenile hall in a cement cell and what it costs to educate a child for a year.
0: So we've talked about some of the mystery about crime going up. We can see these numbers where crime is going down among youths. Do we know why it's happened?
1: There's a lot of theories about this. This is one of the areas where we've gotten a lot of feedback, um, a lot of emails. We sort of uh, researched this. And in fact, there's a 300-page report that I read a few times um, looking at all the the research and data out there about why crime went down. And there's a lot of leading theories. Um, There is the lead theory, which is that um, lead is a really bad, uh, metal that affects your brain and your decision making abilities, and all of those types of things. Um, and that once we started getting rid of lead in gas and paint, that it got out of children's blood, and therefore they weren't as likely to be violent and make bad decisions. There's also technology, which is one of my favorite uh, theories, where with the advent of cell phones and other and video games and and security features on homes and the ability to call the police from the street rather than running to a payphone, phone mm. um, has um, reduced crime, has made the ability of authorities to respond to crime. Um, a lot of people love the Roe v. Wade theory um, that because um, abortion became legal, there were no longer as many unwanted children. Um, but none of these theories really correspond perfectly to the drop in crime. Or really explain it fully, because the reality is a drop in crime is not just in San Francisco or California. It is across the country, and it is, in fact, international. So trying to find theories that really override geography or policies or these types of things, um, there's just nothing that really – there isn't one thing that explains it all.
0: As you reported this story, you started, it sounds like, to get really interested in the juvenile halls that are emptying out. Did you visit any of them?
1: Joaquin and I went to Marin County Juvenile Hall together and toured that one. Um, I think on that day there were about 10 kids in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very old juvenile hall. It's very jail-like, pockmarked cement cells. I also toured uh, Nevada County, uh, which is a fairly new juvenile hall, up by um, Auburn in the Sierra Foothills. And that day there were five kids in a juvenile hall that was built for 60. There were more adults than kids there. You know, I sort of walked up and the whole entry area was dark. They buzzed me into sort of a, a the reception area and the lights were off and there was no one there and it was it was kind of eerie and, and very much exemplified what we're talking about here. Um we also visited San Francisco, which um It's about 40 kids on average. They've shut down half of the pods, turned one into a rec center, and a room off to the side of the lockdown pod, which would normally be used for counseling other types of things, is like a little spa, nail salon area. So it's, you know, they're trying to utilize the space, um, but you still walk into a room that is full of cells, and they're just empty.
0: Wow. Obviously, the, the story has had a big impact so far. What are people talking about? Are there next steps? What is the next steps for the reporting? And what are some of the uh, policymakers talking about as they read the story?
2: Um, So immediately after the story ran, three San Francisco supervisors announced that they're going to make a proposal and look into shutting down the juvenile hall. And so they cited increasing costs and this growing body of research that shows that locking up a kid in juvenile halls usually does more harm than good and that there may be better approaches. Uh, And so they pointed to... Other states that are doing things, you know, very, very differently um, and also much cheaper. And Mayor London Breed in San Francisco, she also announced that their offices, the mayor's office is going to look into or develop a task force that's going to look into how to repurpose this space, how to use this space. Um, and so you have Log Cabin Ranch in Santa Cruz Mountains, which was the probation camp in San Francisco, um, and they shut down recently. So that's empty. And you have all of this empty space in the juvenile hall. And so they're going to look into you know, what can we do there? Um, Statewide, I think people are just figuring out now. I mean, every county has their own juvenile justice system, basically. So you have 58 counties, each one of them, I think, is going to be dealing with this issue in their own way, you know, if at all. So I think we're still a ways from seeing what's going to happen uh, across California.
0: Thank you, guys. Thank you, Joaquin. Thank you, Jill. We'll be right back with Jill Tucker and Supervisor Matt Haney of San Francisco talking about the results of the investigation. Here's Jill Tucker's conversation with San Francisco Supervisor Matt Haney about the results of the Chronicle's vanishing violence investigation.
1: So Matt, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Great to be with you. We wanted to get your thoughts about the Vanishing Violence Project and, and why you decided to join forces with the other supervisors to create legislation to shut down Juvenile Hall.
3: Well, you know, when I read the Vanishing Violence Project and I was, uh, I think, it's at some level shocked, uh, but also it matched up to what I think we've been seeing here in San Francisco and that I've been seeing in my time uh, both as a school board member and now as a supervisor, um, which is a huge shift and change, most of it very positive uh, in terms of a reduction in uh, juvenile crime. Uh, but at the same time, not uh, the same level of change in the system itself. And so as a policymaker, our responsibility is to look at that and go, okay, what does that mean for what we need to do uh, to have uh, our institutions, our policies match what's actually happening in the real world? And I think the data uh, and stories that were told as part of that Uh, reporting, brilliant reporting, uh, uh, really gave us the mandate and and the urgency to take uh, what I hope is a bold step that that gets us closer to uh, that reflection of, of the reality and the needs in the community.
1: Yeah, and and it really is um, it is a bold step, and I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on on what challenges you might face in in getting this passed. Um, you know, San Francisco would become the first urban city in California without a juvenile hall if this happens. Um, and I'd also like your thoughts on, you know, clearly there would need to be some facilities for juveniles who need a secure setting or something like that. What what would you envision that to be?
3: Sure will be some challenges, although, uh, you know, San Francisco uh, is used to being the first on a number of things. And uh, I think this is something that uh, we ultimately will be the first on as well. Uh, I think that there's a lot about this that is actually common sense. Um, We now have a a juvenile hall that is, on most days, at at least two thirds empty. Um, so I think, from from a common sense perspective, um, why are we keeping open this facility at the size, at the spending levels that we have uh, when it is uh, empty? Um, we've also uh, have a situation where a lot of the young people who are there uh, probably don't need to be there. They're awaiting trial. They're there for misdemeanors, and I think most people. Understand now that whenever you can use alternatives to incarceration, especially for children, uh, you should probably do that. Uh, because when you're in an environment where you have orange jumpsuits and handcuffs, um, it does things to people and especially to children that are traumatizing that can then make things much more difficult to get them on the right path moving forward. And if most San Franciscans were to see what is happening in our juvenile hall currently, I've, I've had the opportunity to uh, to visit there a number of times. It's not that there aren't good people that work there. Uh, it's The problem is the environment. Uh, that sort of Kids' jail, I think, uh, is a relic of the past, and it should be. And uh, almost everyone in there is either black or Latino in a city where the black population is, is now very small. Um, I think that there are alternatives that work. Uh, all the data that that we've seen and all the experts would say that... Smaller, less institutional settings, community settings are a better place uh for young people uh, and uh, we're spending thirteen million dollars a year and for for you know for less than forty kids at any given time, we think we can do a lot more for them for that amount of money. Obviously, for more serious crimes, we are still going to have to have uh, some sort of smaller institution that's a locked facility, but it shouldn't look like a huge kid's jail. Uh, That is a waste of money and I think uh, not accomplishing the goals that we should set out for uh, rehabilitation.
1: And uh, so just to sort of sum up, you're drafting the legislation now and you're you're planning on introducing it uh, in the near future.
3: We're planning to introduce it on uh, April 9th. We're going to have a a big rally. There's been just a huge outpouring of support for for this position, I think, backed up by the Vanishing Violence uh, Project. And so uh, I've gotten just mostly great feedback about it. Um, And, you know, obviously there's a lot of questions that we need to answer in terms of what's next. This isn't going to happen next month. It's going to you know, take uh, a year or two years to figure out how to close it. But we want to have the starting point be, let's move beyond this facility. Let's set up alternatives. Let's commit to closing this facility down. And that's probably where there's going to be maybe some differences with other uh, uh, policymakers, maybe potentially with the mayor, in terms of whether we should be uh, committing at the outset to close this facility, which is what we think should be the goal.
1: Great. Well, we thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you. We appreciate it and appreciate your reporting. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Matt Haney, San Francisco supervisor, and reporters Jill Tucker and Joaquin Palomino.
1: Fifth in Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network.
0: If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing.
0: You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.